Welcome to episode 13 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm lucky in many ways with this episode. I'm very lucky this week that this show is now available on several different podcast services. Uh, it is on iTunes now, it's on Google Play, it's on Stitcher, it's uh, available on Spotify as well. So we can find many different ways uh, besides just my Facebook group to uh, listen to it now. Uh, so please seek it out and if you enjoy it, give it uh, all kinds of positive reviews and and that kind of thing. And the last thing that makes it lucky is I have a friend for many, many years, Brandon Snowsell, as my guest, first time guest. Thanks for doing this, Brandon. Hey, and my pleasure. My pleasure. You, I, I put the show together based on your recommendation. You wanted to do a show talking about sales. I'm just wondering why on earth you'd want to talk about sales. Any, 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 any reason, Brandon? Well, if if memory serves. Uh, Jason, and it rarely does at my age. I had been recounting on Facebook my top uh, 10 movies or something or other. Or actually, no, 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 what it was during the COVID-19 quarantine period, I was uh, revisiting some of my favorite movies. And then you said, hey, you should come on and talk about movies because we obviously know each other from, uh, well, many places, but I think one of the first places was the drama department at the University of Saskatchewan. So, and I said, well, okay, sure. I, I don't know as much about movies as you do. I like watching movies. I mm-hmm. enjoy them very, very much. But if I'm going to review movies, I'm not going to review. I I can't review based on all the stuff that Oscar the Oscars will do. That, that's your area. All I know is I know sales. So I thought, well, how can I how can I justify spending you know ten twelve hours watching movies when I have a real job that I have to do? So I thought, well, hey, why don't I why don't I watch some movies that are possibly pertaining to the field that hopefully. I know a little bit about I've been mm-hmm. involved in sales in one way or another for a bunch of years and then I'll I'm probably not going to review based on the same set of criteria that you're going <laughs> to review on and I, I make no apologies for that and that's how, how I'll, I'll get through this with you know my integrity intact because all I'm going to do is talk about sales and probably none of your listeners know about that so so I win but yeah so that's that's kind of how it uh, how it was. I thought I'll do this. Sure, why not? And uh, there are you know surprisingly a, a great number of movies that have to do with sales in one way or another. I'm not saying that we have them all on the show, but we have some for sure. Yeah, and unfortunately there, there were some that we talked about, and I'm like I actually think I have a pretty big movie collection, but some of the ones you mentioned I don't actually own. Well, uh, I, that, I was like, oh shoot, you know what? Why don't I own Boiler Room? Why don't I own Used Cars? Like mo- movies like that Tin Men, which is another fantastic movie i watched years ago so when i when i kind of put this together it was originally four and then we talked about some some other ideas and we added a fifth one on there so i'm not sure if there's a normal anymore because i i kind of go three to six movies just depending on the show here so it's going to be five this time and what i like about everything you just said is exactly why i like having a guest on this show because each guest is going to bring their own life experience and their own expertise and their own perspective to it so i wouldn't claim to know a whole lot about sales and i also i'm hoping to learn from what you're going to say about these movies and what you're going to say about uh, your time in sales through this which is which is going to be awesome uh and sometimes like the oscar criteria is not always the best way to look at things and i'm learning that more and more as i as i go along here one of the things in and I'm sure you'll comment on it as we as we go through the movies that we're talking about here is the portrayal of salesmen is rather negative. And so do you do you feel that this is some sort of a, a bias in Hollywood or 
uh, a bias in society that that is it art imitating life or life imitating art oh you never told me you're gonna ask these questions that's okay <laughs> <laughs> we can cut it out if you, no, if, if you don't like it's but, but I, I was just thinking okay I, if i if i just watched five six movies on teachers and each one and, and this does happen like on like network television shows and stuff with all these teachers who are like sexual predators or that, that kind of thing if i'd watched a series of movies which were just anti-teacher and i'd be like thinking oh you know i want to defend the profession and how it's portrayed in these movies so i was just curious like when we were looking at we'll talk about uh, which movies we're reviewing in a minute but i i, I was no I, 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 yeah I, you, you know what i mean it's kind of yeah, it kind no, of no. seems cynical or negative and time. yeah i'm just giving you a hard time yeah <laughs> I, I totally i totally i totally understand what you're saying i know where the question is coming from and so like i work in the automotive sales industry as uh, as you know your listeners don't but i work in the automotive sales industry so if you were to go to google and sort of i think some of the maybe the only profession or, or maybe two of the only professions that are sort of ranked lower on a you know either a desirability scale or an integrity scale or trustworthy scale would be lawyers and politicians and then <laughs> above that would be used car salesmen for, for example so why is that well it makes for for good theater or it makes for a good movie you have these stereotypes but stereotypes are only there because at some point it's it's been true i would think the industry is changing somewhat but the reality is a lot of a lot more more folks nowadays are doing are shopping online. You can shop for a vehicle online. There's a number of different companies that you know have eliminated the showroom entirely, and, and a big part of that is because of the of the stereotype. Like many people are afraid to walk into the showroom because they think they're going to get lied to. They think that they're going to have high pressure sales tactics used on them. And who wants that? I don't want that. So, and, and the reality is, is that that does happen. It, it will happen. It doesn't happen at successful dealerships. It doesn't happen at places that are, are growing but the reality is is that probably still does happen I mean there's a movement in my industry to, to move away from that and I think the thing that I like most about sales is I don't look at it as selling anything I look at it as helping somebody buy something and I've done lots mm -hmm. of different sales Jason as you may know I mean I'm in the automotive sales industry but I've done corporate sales work for a DHL uh, slash Loomis Courier in Canada here for a number of years worked at trade shows selling stuff of my own my own products years ago when I was in high school doing telemarketing for charity so mm -hmm. uh, sold coupons door-to-door -door when I was at university and a little bit after that so direct sales uh, I've done a lot of different kinds of sales and I would say that for me, it's the thing that I like about it. And the reason I stayed with automotive sales is I like helping people buy things. I think if you ask people, do you like to buy stuff? People are going to say, absolutely. People love mm -hmm. to go shopping. People love to spend money. Nobody likes to be sold. So, and I think that's uh, where in the automotive industry, especially because it is an entry-level career, you don't have to have a degree to start selling cars. And a lot of people come in new, brand new, just learning their trade. And a lot of people don't succeed, but they they try and they, you know, maybe folks have had experiences with salespeople that aren't very good, but that's why the ones that are good do last for 20 plus years. And I would say that the stereotypes are based on a person who's probably been in this, selling in a month, two months, three months, not the ones that have been around for 20 plus years. And there are, there's not as many of them, but they're there for sure. And they're the ones that help people find things to buy, not yeah. that sell them something. People say, I can sell snow to an Eskimo or ice to an Eskimo. Well, I'm frankly, I'm not interested in working for you because what Eskimo do you 
you know that needs ice. They don't. They've got lots mm-hmm. of it. So help them buy something that they want. Yeah. So the stereo, the Hollywood stereotype is it's. It's not fiction, but uh, I wouldn't say that it's the entirety of the industry that's out there. There's a lot of great salespeople, but and I'm sure there's a lot of great lawyers as well. I just haven't met any. Yeah, and we're going to be, I mean, there's very the various scare levels of cynicism here about this I, in each movie. The other piece, which I do think you would appreciate, and I do think, again, I'm just coming outside in, I think is correct, is that sales is hard. It is tough to be a salesman, and that's I, I think there's aspects of that in every single one of the movies. Five movies that we're looking at, an Oscar-winning film from 1996, Jerry Maguire, starring one Tom Cruise. This is, I think, the fourth Tom Cruise movie in the last three episodes that I, I've uh, reviewed. I, I had two with uh, Tim, and then Interview with the Vampire, with uh, the show that was to happen with Dan Boudet, and now uh, Jerry Maguire. I've been watching a lot of Tom Cruise movies lately, uh, for, for whatever reason. So we're going to take a look at Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross from 1992, uh, directed by James Foley, famously uh, written uh, by David Mamet based on his Pulitzer Prize winning play. And we're both theater guys, so I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about with that one. Then we're going to take a look at Oliver Stone's Wall Street from 1988, uh, also an Oscar winning film. It was uh, the role that got Michael Douglas an Academy Award as an actor. Then we're going to be looking at... Uh, actually a TV, kind of an interesting version of Death of a Salesman that stars famously Dustin Hoffman from 1985. And then we're going to end off with 1960s Elmer Gantry. If you're, I like to do this to people where like, uh, which of these feels completely different than the other. This is definitely the oldest of the lot when the rest of the movies are 80s and 90s, even though Salesman is is set at a time uh, long before it was released in, in, in the 80s there. So thank you so much for doing this. If you're ready to go get into it, let's get into it. I want everybody to see you for what you are. The best kept secret in the NFL. You are the man. You ready? Yep. Let's go. Let's walk. My name is Jerry Maguire. I'm a sports agent. You could say I'm at the top of my game, but something just isn't right. Jerry Maguire! What can I do for you, Rod? Show me the money. Can you sign my card? Sorry, little fella. I can't sign this brand of card. Only Pro Jam Blue Dot cards. And lately, it's getting worse. Came here to let you go. Pardon me? I came here to fire you, Jerry. Don't worry. I'm not gonna do what you all think I'm gonna do, which is just flip out! Who's coming with me? Who is coming with me? I will go with you. Dorothy Boyd, thank you. With my love. We're going to be okay because I am going to take my one client and we are going to go all the way. Help me, Rod. Help me help you. Help me help you. You are hanging on by a very thin thread. (laughs) And I dig that about you. You want to go out to dinner? Some dudes might have the coin, but they'll never have the quan. Quan? It means love. Wish me luck. Whoa, hey. That is the first time I have ever seen him kiss a man just like a dad. Don't What's cry at the beginning of a date. Yeah, just cry okay. at the end like I do. She'll let you in her house If you come knocking late at night She'll let you in her mouth If the 
Maguire is about a sports agent named Jerry Maguire, played by Tom Cruise. He has this moral epiphany, and he decides to express this to his entire talent agency, which is covers mostly uh, athletes. And after this is sent out, he is abruptly fired by uh, somebody that he was a mentor for. And he decides to put his new philosophy uh, into action by working for one football player to try to prove like he that he needs to bring more uh, of the personal touch and make it less about about money and that uh, one athlete uh, stays with him and while that happens he manages to leave his agency with a low-level secretary played by one Renee Zellweger and pretty much the role that started to get her mainstream career going and a goldfish. Then the journey becomes uh, several different things including a, a love story between Tom Cruise's character and Renee Zellweger's. The big winner out of this film is uh, Cuba Green Jr. who plays the football player and I, I think very much so this was a, a win for Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe is, I, I talked about him in the very first episode of the show with Almost Famous and he's he's been kind of frustrating in a way. He was a as a young kid, a writer for Rolling Stone, he started making screenplays uh, for other filmmakers. A movie in the 80s called Say, Say Anything kind of got him going, and he made some interesting movies in the 90s, but has been kind of diminishing returns pretty much since almost famous, uh, I might argue. Uh, there's a couple movies in there that I would defend, some that I absolutely despise. And Jerry Maguire's a little bit in the middle for me. I remember, remember I saw this, I think it was the Saskatoon premiere of it, and I thought, well, that was an interesting movie, but I'm not sure it's going to turn into much. And it went ahead, and it got Best Picture nominations. People were talking about that this was Tom Cruise's best performance, Cuba Gooding Jr., of course, and it, it, it was up for several awards. I've had a few years between and I, I found that I really enjoyed seeing back and watching it and it, there's stuff I had forgotten about since I last watched it. And I think in some ways what Crow did is he created almost the perfect Hollywood date movie because you have your sports you have the love story. You have interesting, complex characters. Not everything works out beautifully. Uh, there's a cute kid. And I think on the whole, it's effective. But for years, I've tried to figure out why I've never been all that excited about Jerry Maguire. So I want to get a different perspective on it, Brandon. And I want to hear your opinion about Jerry Maguire. And then certainly, please talk to me about the sales aspect of Tom Cruise being a sports agent with, uh, un unlike his colleagues, with, with this this heart of gold who wants to see the industry changed and uh, and be there more for his clients than he had been so perfect all right so um it's interesting when you when you watch a movie specifically to see what the takeaways are that you can apply to the sales world so i have to i have to correct you on one point that you know, normally it wouldn't, and it's probably in the in the Coles notes versions. But Jerry Maguire did not set out to take one customer to demonstrate that his philosophy worked. Um, no, he is forced to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he got yeah, fired. Yeah, yeah. And so 
And this is actually the, the first point in, in terms of sales because he got fired and then he attempted to call everybody that was in his Rolodex, but he was one guy and the advertising agency knew they were going to fire him, took him off site. And the minute they fired him, they started calling all the customers mm-hmm. to the deal or get them to sign. Right. So and then, and then it's beautiful because Cuba Gooding Jr. keeps him on the phone for like three hours. <laughs> and by the time he was done, everybody else who was on hold had already hung up. But that's that's the reality. That's not fiction. That's the reality is if you're in, in a sales environment where people are looking after customers, if you're going to fire that person or if that person quits, then the first thing you have to do is reach out and contact all of those customers and make sure that you're solid with them. Because if you don't, the other guy's going to call and they're going to they're going to scoop them, right? Mm-hmm. So that that was that's a fairly realistic thing right it was dramatic and or, or you know set up but that's i would say that that was um that was pretty good uh, and it led to it led to one this movie has many quotable famous lines but that scene where Cuba Green Jr. is keeping him on the phone Rod Tidwell is the name of the character uh, who's keeping Jerry on the phone when he desperately needs to you know keep his clients and he's losing one client after another after another and uh that's where the show me show me the money came from Absolutely. you know yeah and he just he had he had to get and it is quite funny and it is built up and it, I mean very Hollywood very cutesy but you see McGuire just in his office screaming show me the money as loud as possible and people are like oh he has lost his his mind because you know they've just given up on him I should also mention that he did retain two clients the number one football prospect in the NFL draft played by uh, Jerry O'Connell uh, many will remember oh. him and and uh, his father's played by Bridges. That's right. Now hold on though, because yeah. that's my second point. So this was good. This almost like you planned this, because this is a this is another another key key point in sales. Mm-hmm. See, he didn't retain him actually. He, he kind of no. did, but he hadn't signed him. They had a they had a verbal agreement. Yeah. My right? word, yeah. my word is my bond, is what Bo Bridges says. Yeah, delightfully yeah, villainous role. Yeah. Uh, that didn't work, did it? No, it, it didn't, didn't work. And no. in the sales world, in the sales world, this is a this is like I, when, I, when you see that, it's like Jerry Maguire. It's a classic, classic rookie mistake because until you have a signed document, until there's a signature, until the pen has hit the paper, you don't have a deal. So yeah. you can, people can say whatever they want, and they do all the time. But until the signature hits the paper, there's no deal unless there's a deposit with a signed contract. You got nothing. So Jerry thought he had two. But he didn't. He had one. And he had a dream. And that dream, obviously, because Bo Bridges' word is his bond was, well, we know what his word is worth now, don't we? Yeah. (laughs) And he's called on it by by McGuire when... He realizes that he's he's kind of a screwed up and b been betrayed again. That's right, because he catches yeah. on the phone, right? He calls. Yeah, him. That's a yeah, and he does an impression of uh, the southern accent that Jerry O'Connell has, and he then he listen hears his protege on the phone there saying, "Oh, is McGuire there?" And he still thinks it's working for him. That's great. Um, so here's here's a question for you. Then knowing this, because we're led to believe in the introduction that Jerry Maguire is a hotshot, top-notch salesman. So how is it that he could have let such a rookie mistake happen? Is that a flaw in the screenplay, or is it a plot convenience, or what's your take on that? Then oh, 
Yeah, uh, I think it's just, uh, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's a plot convenience in rookie mistake, whatever. I think, though, it happens when you are, if you, um, when you get, I wouldn't say overconfident, but I think also if you're a little bit desperate and, uh, you know, um, you don't want to, you don't want to necessarily um, push somebody away. So it's, it's a lot easier to just kind of, well, in, in the sales world, uh, at least in the automotive industry, there's a saying, it's like, there's always a sale being made, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm either selling you something or you're selling me something. So if you haven't signed, and if I've asked you to sign, you've probably given me a reason why you can't sign, whether it's, oh, I got to wait or whatever, whatever. So you just sold me. You sold me on why you can't sign. So I've either made the sale and you've you've signed the paper or you've sold me on why you can't. So there's always mm-hmm. a sale being made. So I, I just think that in this case, Jerry probably there'd probably been conversations and it's like well once we we got to see how the draft goes and get a deal and whatever whatever and then we'll sign then we'll sign then we'll sign so he got sold that's what happened my my take on it I think is pretty similar to yours in some ways there's hubris involved he's the number one hotshot and he thinks he's you know he's gotten very arrogant and he feels like he's untouchable at that time where I've had trouble with the praise of Tom Cruise in this role is I feel like this is a better than average screenplay where Tom Cruise is doing what he does really well. I don't think there was anything in in those sections that were a stretch for him in any way. There's stuff later on, which I suppose emotionally, maybe some people didn't think he could do that I think was perfectly fine. But I, I when I heard that like there were people that really thought he should win an Academy Award for this, I, I just honestly didn't understand it because I thought he, he is a salesman. He is charm. He is Hollywood. And he's not that far removed from this Jerry Maguire character. So that's why I, I, I'm, I'm not sure his performance. I've never gone along with his performance being the best performance in this movie. But I think I as I get... Yeah. I don't fault him for that. I think that's yeah. probably just his really good casting director. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. Yeah. And he ended up with a pretty good relationship with Cameron Crowe. And that's and that's fine. I think he, he serves the role really well. My favorite performance of the three. Yeah. I think just it's always my favorite performance is Renee Zellweger. Oh, um, yeah. And, and it makes sense to me that she became a name after this. I, I like this performance more than the first time she won an Academy Award for a movie called Cold Mountain, where I thought she was, you know, uh, I like the movie and all, but she's she was quite flashing over the top here it's it's quite subtle what she's doing there's a lot of stuff non-verbally that she does that i didn't pick up on honestly the first time i i saw it and she's really torn she wants to be she believes in in jerry mcguire's philosophy of of sales and life and wants to support him but she also is a single mother and she's you know conflicted with the life responsibilities and from the beginning she's been attracted to this guy and she's wrestling with that but she also has to keep her son in mind and she has a sister played by bonnie hunt who sees what's going to happen uh long before it happens and and that and i think zellweger does a nice job of making some of those emotional notes not feel too hollywood or too cheesy even the like the famous like uh uh, you had me at hello and the climax of the film i I think she makes that very believable even though it's such a highly quoted uh a highly quoted uh line you know um it wasn't at the time, but it has been. What do you think about Cuba Gooding Jr.'s performance? Oh, I love him. Uh, he's great. Yeah, he's. Uh, I. I. I uh, yeah. No, I, I like him. He's. He's really good. Yeah. I, yeah. I think yeah, it was a. Sales, there's uh, frankly from from my 
my uh, reviewing vantage point. There's very little for me to take note in in terms of the sales capacity, but I love Cuba Goody Jr. Yeah, yeah, no, no. As far as the as far as his his performance, I I think it's flashy. I mean, you need a high energy guy. He is very much a high energy actor. He's shown that time and time again. And maybe part of it is a little bit of of. Uh, bitterness and i didn't think about it afterwards and i have it associated with another show for the future but we almost could have thrown the movie fargo in here because fargo does have a uh, william h macy's character is a salesman in fargo but i'm an enormous fan of the movie fargo and william h macy and fargo delivered uh everybody talks about francis mcdormand but his performance is as close to perfect as you can get for some reason he was put in a supporting category which i never understood because there's a lead role against cuba gooding jr and i don't think those performances are in the same league the same year fargo same year 1996 yeah and as well and again maybe i shouldn't be using the oscars as a barometer but in that same year another movie i'll review in the future is primal fear which was the big debut in many ways of edward norton and he gives just an absolutely fantastic complex performance in what could have been like a throwaway crime thriller and if i'm looking at those three performances kubla Gain jr as much as it was a fun story and he did this really uh, memorable Oscar acceptance speech. I and a likable guy, but I don't think he necessarily should have won an Oscar for this at all. Like what he does in a movie I'm going to be reviewing fairly soon called Boys in the Hood is a lot more subtle and requires, I think, just a, a little bit more um, acting chops. And that's when he was years younger than this. So he's entertaining, much like the movie is entertaining, but I don't think he was the b- best at all. I actually like Cruz's performance better than I liked Cuba Gooding Jr. So I don't think he was the best person in his own movie, never mind for winning an Academy Award. But show me a mo- show me the money was a, a terrific catchphrase and it was it was kind of a nice story there but, and and that's good. I, I, he does a good job, but I just don't I I don't see it being that amazing a performance. And so maybe that's this part of my hesitation. It's almost like the whole movie I'm like I really am entertained. I really like this but this is pulling me back from saying Jerry Maguire is, you know, so great and so wonderful. And I recommend it to everyone. So you're not giving it 50 points. That's what you're saying. I No, we only have 50 points to give. So I don't think I'll be giving all 50 points to Jerry Maguire. And I'm sounding really harsh on it. I, I do like it. I like that little boy, uh, Jonathan Lipnicki is his name. Uh, but again, that's a little bit of a Cameron Crowe thing. To, he, he feeds these really cutesy lines to this cute kid. And we we enjoy that. And I was really impressed with it when I was when I first saw the movie. Now I see it as, well, it's a cute child actor type of a role. I wanted to also mention, just because I know my, my brother and sister would kill me if I didn't mention uh, Jay Moore. Jay Moore plays... He's a, he's a stand-up comedian, and uh, he is the one who plays Jerry's rival and the, the guy who mentored Jerry and steals all of his clients. And is kind of, to me, like how it's written, is, is that stereotype we were talking about of of the uh, the heartless salesman who's only in it for the money. He, he does quite a nice job. Uh, he still acts and stuff. The reason I'm just mentioning my brother and sister is they, as it happens, have become friends with him. My brother, through the wrestling world and some connections he has in, in Los Angeles with some wrestling clubs. And, and Jay has come to Calgary and, um, and Michelle 
John Craig were able to tour around Calgary and drive him around and, and, and that kind of thing. And so it was a it was a big, big role for him in his career. And he came in the audition. They had somebody else in mind, apparently. And he they said he was absolutely perfect for the role. He was going to go for the Jerry O'Connell uh, football player role, apparently. But uh, oh. they went went there yeah so uh, just wanted to mention that that little bit anyway so i recommend jerry Maguire with some reservations what's your take on it? you were entertained by it and you, oh, you I looked, love that movie. yeah I love yeah that movie. yeah no very it's very entertaining it's easy to watch i didn't mind watching it It wasn't challenging whatsoever um from a sales point of view probably i mean it wouldn't be my uh yeah from a just for the purposes of this segment it it what it, it won't be my highest ranked movie in terms of sales takeaways, but there mm-hmm. were definitely a few nuggets in there for sure. But you, you like it as a, you're probably more than like it as a movie. Oh yeah, there, yeah. It, it's actually, um, I mean, it, it's an R-rated comedy, but it it's actually it feels like one of the lighter movies that we're talking about here. That's right. Yeah, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. Let me have your attention for a moment. Put that coffee down. Let's talk about something important. As we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. You want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you fired. Somebody should stand up and strike back. Somebody yeah. should do something to them. Hell exists on this earth. What can you do? I gotta tell you, I'm ready to do the Dutch. I know what I'll do. I'll go out and rob everybody blind and go to Argentina. You think you're a thief? We're just talking. We are? Yeah, we're just speaking about it. Speaking about it is an idea. We're not actually talking about it. No. It's a robbery. It's a robbery? No. And what is it we're so afraid of? All you need, a little boost. Tonight is the thing. So be it. What happened? What happened? Uh, we had a slight burglary. Criminals come and they, they take, they steal the phones. They stole the phones, they stole the... Oh. You robbed the office. Oh, sure, I robbed the office. Oh, sure. You did that? Will you get out of here? How can you talk to me that way? Are you talking to me? When I talk to the police, I get nervous. You know who doesn't? Oh, uh, thieves. What's your name? Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, from the Pulitzer Prize winner, Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. This is how we keep score, the beat. 1992, probably the second full year that I was a uh, self-proclaimed movie geek. And there were all kinds of interesting movies that came out with some strong... It, it was considered a year where they were really focusing on women, but there were all these amazing performances by males. And one of the great ensembles, I think, of all time was put together. The movie itself, as far as awards and that, didn't necessarily do as well, other than an Oscar nomination for Al Pacino. But Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is an all-star cast put together for the film version of David Mamet's Pulitzer Prize winning play. Difference, there's some, there were some differences. Mamet wrote it himself, but the original play is set in Chicago, and it really is starts, the first act is a series of scenes, two-handers basically with the main characters, and then the second act is uh, after a robbery has happened at uh, this, uh, for lack of a better term, this uh, sales outfit where they are s- selling swampland in Florida. Uh, they moved the movie to New York. Uh, they took it outside of indoor locations. There's 
scenes of uh, people in this rainy night uh, making phone calls, uh, driving in cars, a few more scenes like that. And famously, they added a scene, which some might argue is Alec Baldwin's finest hour as a film actor. He's had a lot of success in comedies on television the last few years, but he comes in and he is from um, the main branch and he is telling the salespeople, almost all of them, that the sales contest this month is the first person, top person with sales wins a Cadillac, second is steak knives, third place, you're fired. And on top of it all, they are to use these really, really awful leads to call people who they've tried and tried and tried to call in the past and who will never, as you said before, sign for uh, the property that they're trying to sell. And there's better property available, but you have to be number one or maybe number two. And we get to meet a whole bunch of people. And this is to me like such a great cast uh, in the early 1990s. So I mentioned Al Pacino. He's the one who, he got an Oscar nomination. He was a double nominee that year. That was the year he finally won an Oscar for Scent of a Woman, but he's he's quite good. He plays Ricky Roma, who is on a hot streak. He is the number one salesman. And I'm interested to hear about your sales takeaway because it takes multiple viewings, but he Pacino does a good job with Roma of how he's always looking for the next sale, while these others who are struggling are running around trying to come up with illegal schemes or survival, and he's just calmly going about looking for his next mark who happens to be played by jonathan price jonathan price is another <laughs> craig story craig chased jonathan price down the streets of manhattan to get a picture with him back in the 2005 or 2006 so anyway then we also have jack lemon who i consider one of the greatest american actors of all time playing Shelley Levine, who's uh, the oldest salesman. He he has some, uh, his, his daughter has some issues and he needs to pay some bills, uh, but he was once number one. He was once Ricky Roma, but he is struggling to make a sale. I mentioned Alec Baldwin came in and he delivers a scathing monologue here and he plays a character named Blake. Alan Arkin, who kind of gets lost in the mix here, and Alan Arkin's an amazing actor, played George Arano, who's a guy who's so bent out of shape and so nervous that he he can't do anything right as far as making sales. Then we have the most bitter person. This is in every workplace, somebody who is complaining about management. Ed Harris uh, plays Dave Moss, another terrific performance. The guy who runs the this particular office is played by Kevin Spacey, the now infamous Kevin Spacey, plays John Williamson. And that's those are the highlights of this cast. Everybody is on their A plus okay. game. The whole cast is just taking this writing and eating it up and spitting it out. Before I let you speak, because I've been talking for a long time, just another claim to fame of this particular movie. For many years, Scarface had the record for the most F words. Then that was uh, passed on to The Wolf of Wall Street, which I, as a movie I don't physically own, was a candidate for this show at one point. But... Per the amount of time, because this is about an hour and a half film, per amount of time on screen, this movie has the record for the most F-bombs of any film 
uh, of all time. David Mamet, uh, in his writing, loves his F word, and these actors use it a lot. So just, I, I don't know, it's a, a fun fact, but it's also a little bit of a warning as you listen to this review and you're thinking, oh, I'd, I want to sit down with Grandma and watch this one. Uh, maybe maybe this isn't the one to watch with Grandma. So what do you think of Glengarry Glen Ross? Well, I didn't know about the swearing, but that's actually, uh, uh, in, in the sales industry, um, it's a very colorful, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the language is very colorful. So yeah. that, that's true to life for sure. Um, I, lo- I love this movie. And um, I've worked at lots of workplaces. Well, I shouldn't say lots, but many that uh, were, were exactly, were very, very similar. So sales is, the commission-based sales is, can, can be lucrative, but it's also very cutthroat because at the end of the day, you're there to make whoever owns the store, you're there to make them money. And if you're not selling anything, not only are you not lining your pockets, but you're also not making any money for the company. And so they'll they'll fire you. You don't need any experience to sell. That's that's not so much the way it is anymore. We're in a much different work environment than it, than it was in the you know 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's a lot different now. Uh, in many respects, but um, so the ABC, you know, when, when uh, always uh, be closing. Yeah. They, they, that's, I've heard that in many, uh, maybe it's always from the movie, but I don't think so. I think that uh, they borrowed that. That wasn't, uh, that's, that predates the movie. They've, they've taken that. So Ed Harris's character, whose name I can't remember, but that character, Dave Moss. Yeah. Thank you. You, you mentioned the negativity and in sales, one of the things that we always, that I always tell all of the new people that, that start with us, sales is all about attitude, right? It's it's all it's all up in, it's hard work, but it's also all about your attitude, positive mental attitude. And the, the surest way to derail, a, you know, a blossoming or a, a lucrative sales career is to sit around the water cooler, which they do in that movie, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and complain because if you're sitting around the water cooler complaining with your colleagues, that's not helping. That does absolutely nothing in terms of finding your next prospect or working to fill your funnel so you you're making sales. All you're doing is self-destructing. You're imploding. You're you're uh, you know ruining ruining your options. So so that was they they talked about there was a, a line or somewhere there where they talked about the water cooler that was just like you know that tweaked and and the leads. People, I mean, leads are, um, that's true, right? <laughs> like, it's its very hard to sell somebody something that they don't, like we talked about earlier, that mm-hmm. uh, they don't want to buy. It's hard. But if you have leads where people have raised their hand and said that they're interested, well, those are the ones you want to get your hands on. Absolutely. For sure. Lemon's character, even though he's kind of washed up at this point, he, he does, uh, at some point talking with one of the guys there's there's many things that he says or uh or pacino's character where, where they talk about you know you close you got to close and then you say nothing so you ask for the money and then shut up and that's in many sales books that's that's what they say is ask for the money and then shut up those there, there'll be some things where they'll say the whoever speaks first at that point loses and sometimes it's true sometimes it's not true there's it's it's a little more nuanced than that but if you ask a question, shut up. Many times salespeople will derail their um, their chances because they start talking before the person has said yes or no or given them an objection that they need to overcome. 
and then they just derail the sale. So ask for the money and then shut up. Uh, so that was that was one of the things. Another, uh, and I think this is uh, Pacino's character. He when he's talking with uh, I think uh, Lemon or maybe it was Wood, but he says, uh, "Never open your mouth till you know what the shot is." And so uh, that was the Spacey's, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because because basically what what Spacey has done, and again, I I I, I always fail right. to mention spoilers, but yeah, I uh, again, right. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll write it for this episode, and I mean, I'm not sure we're having like big plot twists in any of the movies we're talking about this time, yeah. but they're in the middle of the situation where somebody has robbed robbed the office, and Spacey comes out and and. Uh, Pacino is is playing a con with the 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 uh, Jonathan Price character who's had second thoughts about the sale he agreed to the night before, and Spacey comes out and says, "No, it was signed. It was sent to the bank. Everything, you know." And 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 Pacino just rips him apart in the most glorious manner possible, and it, it's in there uh, where where he says that, and then Lemon ends up repeating that. And ironically, Lemon starts talking too much, and he causes a similar type of reversal of power between him and and Spacey shortly after that from talking too much. So that's a really good point about the well, just just, sh- just shut up and let it you know let it happen because that's 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 covered really well in the screenplay. It, it is quite a remarkable piece of writing, I think, oh, yeah. whether you see it in on stage or you see it in this film. Yeah. But and, and that line is, is very very true. In, in so in the automotive industry, um, when a salesperson is working with a customer, it's an unwritten rule that no other salespeople are to talk to that customer, right? Uh, for two reasons. Um, but well, if if the customer comes up and talks to you, obviously you'll talk. But if they ask you questions, you're always going to defer to the other salesperson, just because you don't know what you don't know what's been covered, you don't know what other questions the other person has asked, and you don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize the making that sale for the salesperson. Because if you do, that salesperson doesn't get paid, right? So essentially, it's it's not don't open your mouth till you know what the play is, because that's. The, the connotation is that there's something shifty going on. Well, and there is in this office. I mean, this is not great land that he's selling. I mean, it's... No. Yeah. But, I mean, in any sales, if somebody is, you know, if somebody's quoted one price, but you may not know <laughs> all the particulars of what's going on, last thing you want to do is say something that's going to make the other person look bad. Well, this right? man said that it would be that. I mean, what about that? Because, right. you know, yeah, that... Well, because you don't know all the other particulars that have gone on, there's so many different variables. So, yeah, if it's not your th- if it's not your deal, if it's not your cut, just shut up. But here's the piece with that, like, and again, you're talking about it, and it was a play that was written in the '80s and the films in the '90s, so it is it is an older idea. But there is very much pitting salespeople against each other to be at the top of the sales board. And so these guys, some of them get along, but some others just absolutely hate each other. And like Moss, I think is number two on the sales list behind Roma, but those two guys just hate each other. I could see in the environment that's been created in this type of a world, ways that you could go and try to screw over other people so that you stay at the top or you bring down somebody who's at the top. And again, it's a violation of ethics, but I, I, I'm i not seeing in this particular movie any of them really having any sort of ethics. And Moss in particular has made this, this deal with uh, this 
with this other this other guy who went on his own and opened up his own thing potentially to steal the leads these really great leads the problem is with moss is that he's talking all the time he has it out to, for for management and all of that so he needs to conspire with somebody and it's really clever what happens because he really screws over uh, Ellen Arkin's character by having this conversation and making him an accessory to a potential robbery, yeah. you know, and, and that's his entire goal through this bit. So with all the negativity and everything, like actually Ed Harris, his character is, is a very good salesman, but he's also a very smart guy, you know, yeah. even. And unfortunately, I, what we're seeing is like most of these guys, I don't think can really cut it in this kind of a cutthroat environment. And when we're talking about only keeping at the end of the month two employees and then three others are are fired, I mean it's uh, it's it's interesting. But they set it up in a way that the stakes are high in the play. They, they that scene's off stage with with the Al Baldwin character here. Seeing it, we get to see and feel and and hear how high the stakes are for these characters. So it's set up very well. So I'll so, tell you, so yeah. in terms of, because you asked me about the Jerry Maguire thing, is like, is, is it real? So I'll tell you a story. This goes back to the 80s. Um, I worked in, uh, I told you I was working telemarketing, raising money for charity. Uh, and I was in high school at the time, so uh, mid-80s and um, part-time job at nights. And I was, I was actually one of the top producers. But uh, one uh, one evening, my uh, my boss comes in, and uh, he didn't like me for a variety of reasons. But anyway, he said, "Okay, if you don't raise this amount of dollars tonight, then you're fired." And I'm like, "You're kidding! This is you're kidding." And he said, "No, you, if you don't raise this amount of money, you're fired." And I was the top guy in the room. Like, there's probably like twelve people that are, were on phones with phone books, calling the numbers anyway. So fortunately I did, I raised, I didn't get fired. Maybe I should have, would have changed my trajectory in life. But um, that same company, different boss, actually the general manager found out later, he actually ended up in jail for fraud because he was stealing from the company. So <laughs> and they were raising money for charity. I won't name any of the charities. They're all very well known, yeah. but um <laughs> There's in the, definitely in the '80s that move that the totally ring of truth, totally ring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, feel, it feels real to you, uh, yeah. and, and that and that's where I land on this. Would versus like Jerry Maguire is going to make me feel nicer, I suppose, because it's a much less cynical film than Glengarry Glen Ross, but I, I find Glengarry Glen Ross just very rewatchable. Again, we've both been actors and been directors and it feels like it, scenes from this were just a regular, a regular thing at, uh, during, uh, you know, my, my time in the department, there were uh, a group of uh, mutual friends of ours that put on a production of it. Were, were you in the department? Do you remember that? Yeah, I, know, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to see it, but I do remember it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Tim was in it, and yeah. and and Sky, and and it, it's just uh, it's just a wonderful piece. You know, you could tell it was shot in the in the '90s. Some of the hairstyles are very very '90s, but I think the movie holds up all these years later. And I, it again, it is such a strong movie, and I I I, I will not feel the least bit bad giving it a lot of points here. Director of Platoon, Wall Street. 
stock is plummeting. When it hits 18, buy it all. Something big is going down. I want to know where he goes and what he sees. I want you, pal, to fill out the missing picture. Mr. Gecko, that's not exactly what I do. Where you can trade your honor. I can lose my license. That's inside information. For power. If you're not inside, you are outside. I know what this guy's all about. Greed. There is no nobility in poverty anymore, Dad. Greed is good. Greed works. What makes you tick, bud? The fear of being poor. That's all gonna change. So I'm catching the express. All right, Mr. Gecko, you got me. Trade your peace of mind. What's in it for moi? More money than you ever dreamed of. Just the beginning, pal. If any trouble does arise, you are on your own. The trail does stop with you. For a piece of the action. The richest 1% of this country owns half our country's wealth, $5 trillion. All it takes is a little inside information. I don't care where or how you get it. I think you owe me. And you can trade everything you believe in. He's using you, kid. You're too blind to see it. For everything you've ever wanted. I get a strange call from the SEC. They asked to see my records. This is heavy, bud. I don't know where you get your information, son, but I don't like it. Michael Douglas. Why do you need to wreck this company? Because it's wreckable, all right? Charlie Sheen. When does it all end, huh? How many yachts can you water ski behind? How much is enough? Daryl Hannah. You may find out one day that when you've had money and lost it, it's much worse than never having had it at all. Martin Sheen. What I see is a jealous old machinist who can't stand the fact that his son's become more successful than he has. You see, he's a guy who never measured a man's success by the size of his what? An Oliver Stone film, Wall Street. A few episodes ago, I, I reviewed JFK, um, the director's cut of JFK. And that was a movie that really got me into being a movie geek. And uh, and I, I would have said throughout the 90s, you hear that Oliver Stone was my favorite filmmaker. He would take controversial issues and he kind of throw back from a different angle what was happening at different times in the United States, particularly with his Vietnam trilogy. But Wall Street, he was his big follow-up to his Oscar-winning movie, Platoon. And he wanted to take a look at a, a, a version of the jungle, but the urban jungle with late 1980s uh, Wall Street. Uh, even though the story of this uh, is set in the mid-80s, but then the film came out, I think I said 1988 earlier, I'm going to correct myself, is 1987 that Wall Street came out. And it's about this really young and impatient stockbroker, lower-level uh, uh, salesman played by Charlie Sheen, uh, who was also Stone's collaborator on Platoon. And he's willing to do absolutely anything to start to move towards being on top. He starts to get some inside information, which he shares with a very powerful high roller in Wall Street named Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas. And as this happens, we start to see how the, the greed and the money and the women and everything that comes along with being on Gecko's good side and feeding this information for Charlie Sheen starts to change who he is. In there, we we have 
this is one of the times it happened a few times where his actual father, Martin Sheen, played his father. And Martin Sheen is a well-respected uh, union leader uh, and working as a repair uh, repairman on um, on uh, airplanes. And Sheen uses some of that information to get in good with Gecko. And we start to see the contrast between the hardworking, you know, uh, hardworking man in the United States in the 1980s and the people who you might argue produce absolutely nothing but just work in this very strange world of the stock market and get richer and richer and richer and oppress the working class people more and more. And that's, I think, what Stone is trying to get us, us to think about with Wall Street. It also features uh, Daryl Hannah, who plays uh, Charlie Sheen's eventual girlfriend, and she's interested in the world of art. And, of course, there's a little bit of a, a plot twist about her character. I also want to mention regular collaborator with Oliver Stone, John C. McGinley, who's comfortable in drama, but also in comedy. He plays uh, Charlie Sheen's workmate. And well, I, I wanted to mention Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp has an appearance here as one of Gordon Gecko's competitors. And Sean, uh, Sean Young, of course, who is in Blade Runner and a few other movies in kind of the 80s and 90s. Towards her end of her career, she was an Ace Ventura pet detective. She plays Michael Douglas's uh, wife in the movie as well. So it's a pretty decent cast, not quite the cast of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross here, but I see this as kind of a middle of the road Oliver Stone film. I'm not sure there's anything overly controversial in this one. It doesn't have the visual dazzle that, say, Born on the Fourth of July, Platoon, JFK, Natural Born Killers has, but I certainly feel his presence and his vision throughout the uh, throughout the film. So. I am a fan of Wall Street. It's interesting to me that Michael Douglas won Best Leading Actor for this because it really is Charlie Sheen's story. He's the lead. He's the central character. And Gordon Gecko is kind of the, the flashy side character, but it was just the impact of his... Uh, his power and his uh, performance here that I suppose elevated it to this is the movie about Gordon Gecko and his famous monologue in there where he says greed is good, which you might argue is a theme of capitalist philosophy of the United States in the 1980s, that greed is good. And we have seen that repeated in our recent history, I might argue. So there's my left wing tangent on <laughs> Oliver Stone's uh, Wall Street. What do you think about Wall Street? Well, you know, I'm actually um, I'm relieved to say that you say it's a middle of the road because as you're talking <clears throat> about, because uh, I, I I know you're a, an Oliver Stone fan, and uh, I so, have been. Yeah, it's yeah. been a while since he produced a really great movie, in my opinion. But I I, yeah. I, I still pay the money to see his movies. So <laughs> there you go. So I, when this movie came out initially, I, I think I saw it. I, I'm pretty sure that because I, I, I'm pretty sure when it first came out, I saw it. I was, you know, it, I, I haven't seen it in many, many years. So watching it for this show again was, you know, uh, to see the Twin Towers still standing. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's always. Like, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, my know. goodness. And then you're taken back to like, wow. What a different world we live in now, right? Mm -hmm. So that part of the visual, anytime there's a movie that takes you back there, it's like, oh, yeah, things are different. Things changed. So, like, I remember liking the movie. And then in terms of um, watching it 
for this show in, in the terms of a sales context, I hated it. I just didn't like it at all. <laughs> but and so I was trying to, I was trying to figure out uh, as you were talking, you know, what is it? Like, why don't I like it? Or didn't I like it? You know, cause you know, Tom Cruise, uh, or not Tom Cruise, but, um, Charlie Sheen. and, uh, uh, Charlie Sheen, like I love, like I love Martin Sheen and, uh, and oh, I, he's I, so good. Yeah. yeah. Great. And I'm Whatever Charlie Sheen's been in some good movies, kind of crazy now, but I, I still like it. And then Michael Douglas, he's he's awesome. I love him. Mm-hmm. So like the actors are good, the acting's in good. But then in terms of there's not a lot of sales per se. But so I was trying to figure out why why it um, uh, why I reacted so much more negatively, not just because it didn't have any sales, but but it does. But it's because it's keyed on it in a bit there in terms of. Not the greed, but earlier on you were talking about how the difference between the blue collar dad, mm-hmm. uh, Martin, versus the uh, white collar, right? Yeah, fun, yeah, and and I think that's maybe what because sales isn't like at least the world of sales that I live in, there's nothing easy about it. And to have people, you know, that because essentially this movie isn't about greed. I mean, it is, but it's about lying. It's, it's about mm-hmm. corruption and it's, and there's none of that exists in a successful salesperson's repertoire because sales is it's hard work and it's a skill it's it's not about how many people can i lie to and how many people can i take advantage of and that's kind of what this movie is it's it's all about lying and it's all and then michael Doug, michael douglas takes advantage of the, the kid in a moment of weakness and then holds it over his head so it's blackmail and it's just and it's it's just ugly and i you're you're left wing and i'm not at all but i am totally about the one percent and in terms of the 99 like i'm not part of the one percent and i despise systems that are set up to keep the ultra rich rich like it should be it should be capitalism isn't about capitalism isn't about how many laws can i break like those banks shouldn't have been bailed out you break the law let them fail why are we bailing out ultra rich people you know in, in our country they gave all the money to the automakers well give the money to the people to go buy a car and then let the automakers survive that sells the most cars don't bail out the automakers give the money to the people let them spend it however they want that would be capitalism there, there's a lot like that the the, the bailout business is a whole it does relate in many ways because it was it was like stone in 87 we probably filmed it in 86 is saying watch out what's coming in the future and then we see in 2008 that basically 20 years later yeah everything in there is absolutely right i mean the corruption in in that world is so so prevalent and i think it's still prevalent uh i don't think any of that has completely changed there are some redeeming characters in here and i I, one of them i i didn't mention in the list of actors is hal holbrook an actor i I, I like quite a bit and he's a bit of a quasi father figure for charlie sheen in the space where he's working in in lower level sales on wall street but he's working on wall street and he says there's no shortcut i've seen one guy after another try to find a shortcut and it never turns out well and then holbrook gives him the message he's kind of like a cassandra character as far as greek mythology and and yeah this young guy's not gonna listen and he has to go through this journey where he reaches the top 
and then he hits the bottom as he's taken out of his workplace in front of everybody uh, in handcuffs. I, I would say that if you look at Platoon and you look at Wall Street, you probably have Charlie Sheen's two best performances on film. Stone at the time, I think he saw a little bit of Charlie Sheen in himself or something, and maybe Stone when he was younger and he and when he fought in Vietnam looked a little bit like Sheen, and that's why he cast him. And they they did well together on Platoon, and so he his next movie he had him there as a lead. But they didn't. Other than the sequel, which I'll talk about someday. We, we do, spoilers, see Charlie Sheen make a cameo in that movie, but that, th those are the only times that they work together. But like, there's all kinds of backstories here, too, and maybe that's why I might be a little bit nicer to this movie than you will be, uh, you know, that I find interesting. I, I think we get some good notes from, from uh, Charlie Sheen after his father has had uh, this heart attack, and, and he nearly dies, and he's in the hospital, he goes to visit him and, and the two together have a really, really nice scene. And what I've heard from that is that, you know, for Sheen, it was total sense memory because this happened already. Because famously on the Apocalypse Now set, Martin Sheen had a heart attack and he ended up in hospital and nearly died. And Charlie Sheen went to his bedside and in real life it had this. And so he was tapping into that experience before and together they were playing off each other beautifully. And I, I think, you know, for years I've kind of thought, okay, well, Michael Douglas overshadows Charlie Sheen. He doesn't give an, get enough credit for this movie, but watching it this time, I actually think uh, other than Douglas, Martin Sheen's performance, the next best in the movie. I, uh, I really like what he does. I'm not sure it was a stretch for him, and, but, but he's, he's quite good, particularly that little speech he gives after uh, Gordon Gekko pitches that thing to, to all of the unions connected to the air, airlines. And he ends up embarrassing his son. But he says, you live long enough, you see it all. And he he just basically sees right through Gordon Gecko and calls him on it. And that leads to this other great scene. Uh, very well filmed, by the way, in an elevator. Seems like it was all one take. They must have done it in an actual uh, building in New York or something like that, where the father-son argument goes into the elevator and goes outside the door and uh, into the streets there. Uh, I think there's a lot to like here. Uh, Canadian Saul Rubinick makes an appearance. Um, I, I talked about him a little bit uh, in this movie called The Contender as well. Uh, he plays this uh, Gecko's lawyer and very, very sleazy fellow as well. So, again, this is more in the Glengarry Glen Ross cynical category of the movies we're looking at. That's why I've seen Jerry Maguire is kind of the, the feel-good uh, piece in here. And sales are involved. I mean, it's just what we're seeing is a guy who's who is sick of, like, the work you're going to have to do to naturally earn the promotions and he's looking for the fast way forward. And I think there are probably a couple generations of people out there who are looking for the easy way to make a buck and are are, are not willing to put in the work. So, And this is just serves as a warning to people that going after that and through illegal means and through lying is just not uh, the right way to go. So I, I think we could get behind that idea, even if we maybe see things a little bit different politically with this movie. I don't know oh, if we do or not. 100%. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love Martin Sheen's character. I think that the interplay between father and son is awesome. And yeah, no, that that whole dynamic there, like and not father and son in the real sense, but in terms of the movie sense, but that father-son dynamic, I, I I really, I like it. It's It's good. But he's looking, it seems like Sheen's looking for another father too. And he looks at Hal Holbrook, but then he... He looks at Gordon oh, yeah, Gecko. Yeah. But yeah. that's 
but that comes back full circle because he doesn't appreciate his father's like he he's trying to not rebel but he sees his dad as blue collar he wants more so he yeah. doesn't value he doesn't see the value in his his father's values he doesn't see that that is important so he latches on to somebody else but then by the end of the movie he says i've completely misunderstood i've completely mm-hmm, mm-hmm misunderstood or undervalued my father and he's been right all along and it comes back full circle so i i i really like it i would say you could tell it was filmed in the 1980s now there's just things that scream 80s and some of the glasses the costuming that kind of thing but i i still think there's enough there are enough people out there that could get something out of seeing this film Willie Loman never earned a lot of money. His name was never in the paper. He's not the finest character that ever lived. Oh, I'm gonna knock Howard for a loop, kid. Oh. I'll get an advance and I'll come home with a New York job. Oh. Damn it, I'm gonna do it. Oh, <laughs> I will never get behind a wheel the rest of my life. Changing, Willie. I can feel it changing. Beyond the question. Oh. I'm talking about your father. There were promises made across this desk. You mustn't tell me that you got people to see. I put 34 years into that sperm hour and now I can't pay my insurance. You can't eat the oranges, throw the field away. A man is not a piece of fruit. You're coming home this afternoon, Captain, of the All-Scholastic Championship team of the city of New York. That's right, Pop. You're number four. When I take off my helmet, that touchdown's for you. I gave you an order. I gave... Don't touch me, you liar. You apologize for that. You fake. But he's a human being, and a terrible thing is happening to him. I am an enormous fan of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Uh, I've used it a lot in my uh, 30B English class. uh, I love... To tell the story of how, as a result of this Arthur Miller, or it seemed like he questioned the idea of, or in the concept of the American dream, where you can achieve anything you want if you just work hard enough. He was then put in front of the McCarthy witch trials and was accused of being a communist. And then going through this process of being accused of being a communist became uh, the seed for his other very famous play, The Crucible, where he decided to do an allegory comparing his experience in the, uh, being accused of being a communist in, in the McCarthy hearings to the Salem witch trials and, and making that connection there. As I've grown older, I've been able to sort of understand like what a complex and great character Willie Loman is and what an amazing creation in the history of theater. I can understand why it, there was kind of it and waiting for Godot, I think were number one and two for the, for the 20th century, as far as the best plays that were created. And I can get behind that a lot. I know some people who don't like this play very much. I know a lot of students that I have would misinterpret Willie Loman in particular and some of his actions, but there's so much good in this play. And I'm excited to see a film version of this play and on top of that there are two actors and actually there's more than that in here there's another actor i want to mention in a minute but the two leads are the great dustin hoffman one of the most amazing method actors you know the history of uh, american cinema and another actor i really like named john malkovich who plays biff his son. And what we have here is the story of uh, a traveling salesman who is now on his ease and he's thinking back on his life and he 
he's trying to reconcile the fact that his son in high school is such a popular personable kid and has now not been able to hold down a job and is, is now back home he has another son named happy who he basically ignores uh who is the other son and uh then his wife linda who is insanely loyal to him and he at points treats absolutely horribly throughout the other uh person i i want to mention in here is his neighbor charlie who seems to have all that willie has desired throughout his his life and is played by the charles durning another great new york based actor so this was a tv movie based on a production that happened in new york and is very much shot like a play on on film and the mystery to me in all of this with all of these elements here and all of these things that i love is why is it that i do not like this movie in any way shape or form help me solve this brandon <laughs> i'm counting on you well i don't know why you don't like it i i think uh maybe it's because it's a movie that looks like a play but i don't know that was, yeah. I, I, I like i've liked some some movies that have looked like plays and in fact there's one that uh with john malkovich in it a uh, film version of the glass menagerie that was directed by paul newman had joanne woodward and and john malkovich played tom in that production and it's it's one i've used in my classroom and uh i i think it's quite effective it doesn't have the production values much like like this one one thing that they did actually do right is they had him have an amazing cinematographer uh michael balhus and he does he does a nice job particularly with the transitions between the present time and the past he, i had a he, tough he, time following that at the beginning like i've never I, I i've never seen the play oh you haven't okay yeah so and so I, i'm interested to get your take on it then because I, that's a, a big thing i spend time on when i teach the play it, is that the kids get really screwed up in some ways and if they aren't listening to me they get particularly screwed up because at the beginning i tell them that death of a salesman is not a realistic play it's expressionistic and there's use of music and they're very much aware that everything is is a set and, and and all those transitions and so what what we're seeing should not be taken literally throughout there's some points which are more in reality and other points we're spending a lot of the play inside willie loman's head and well, it's not even inside it is inside of his head yes yeah like he's losing his mind right like he's no 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 uh, that's that's another thing i get i i get into it with people on on this one and, I, and students think that they think that he's had a mental break breakdown that that is not it and like his actions spoilers folks for this but the play is called death of a salesman um a salesman dies at the end of this thing to be able to enact what he is doing he's doing it all for his family he's thinking through these things rationally his his thinking is is definitely skewed and he is dealing with the demons of his past and not facing reality but he is has not lost his mind uh, at all he's 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 tired and he's seen the world move on past him and he doesn't know how to how, how to work in this world anymore so he lives in the past to try to cope with uh instead of dealing with the pain of the present and so i i this is my big tangent is that he has not lost his mind yet i i do hear that a lot about the willie loman character so um well, because he's his uncle like that's his uncle right that he's always talking to yeah but that's just he's he's remembering a visit with his uncle 
And a big part of this is that Willie never knew his father. His father left when he was young. So he, you see in the flashbacks, he's trying to get more information from his uncle about what his father was like. And so he's seen his his uncle, who he barely saw. He only saw him a couple of times, but knew him as this successful man. And he, he he's searching for some guidance from a father figure as he tries to sort out what to do. Should he live? Should he die? Uh, it seems like they don't have enough money. He can't work anymore and what is he going to do and his his boys aren't settled and they should be settled by now so what is he going to do so he's going back and he's thinking about the past but he's he himself is wrestling with okay what would his uncle do but what we're seeing is some, some people said he's schizophrenic and they're taking the play as a as realistic because he's seeing the uncle and he's having conversations while he's playing cards with uh, charles durning but then he sees his uncle come in and starts talking to him i i i, I can understand why you think he's losing his mind and here's my big problem with this it's rarely my problem but Dustin Hoffman is so freaking over the top in this performance and totally ruins the 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 movie for me I cannot get behind anything like he sort of they, they do a nice job of the makeup because he wasn't really that old when he played the role in the mid 80s but they do a decent enough job with that so he looks the part but he he plays it he does play it so big and somewhat psychotic so I can totally understand why you're thinking that but I, and again, that's that's just why I'm having problems getting behind this one. I still love watching the story and everything, but I, you know, I, I that's... Well, to me, it makes total sense. I mean, so, like, I haven't, uh, that's all I know, because I only saw the movie. Mm-hmm. And the people around him think he's losing his mind, because they don't want him to leave the house. They got to keep his eye on him, because he's talking to people that aren't there, right? And talking to people that aren't there, generally, is a sign that there's maybe, maybe you're not fully engaged in... in this reality and to me so there's a couple of and, and there's so which the guy's totally stressed because obviously there's money issues right uh, obviously he's older and he's realizing there's not enough money to go around his son and his relationship with his son has gone completely sideways so let me ask you this why why does it bother him so much that his wife is uh, fixing up her stockings because he's give he feels guilt again. If he had a if he was psychotic, he would not be able to rationalize this. But he used to give away his product to his mistress. He'd have affairs when he was on the road, and so and the key moment is again spoilers for the play here. But young Biff, after he through a whole series of events, has basically failed out the last class he needs to graduate high school. He goes to see his father in Boston, catches his father with a, another woman and and in there it's talked about that you know he's giving these stockings away to the mistress well his wife is you know they don't have enough money for new stuff so she's she's uh she's mending the stockings so he gets really upset about that but it's more of a way of projecting his own guilt about cheating on his loyal wife who's always you know has his back and also the fact that there's somebody in the family that knows that he was doing this. The son, yeah. So the, and I agree. That's so. When I first saw that, that was um, so. I watched the movie not knowing anything about the story, and he gets upset about the stockings. And it's like, oh, well, absolutely, because if you're in sales, and we know he isn't making any money, we know that because that part they've already talked about. And so, but if you're in sales, you want you, you want to have the the newest, the latest, the greatest, um, and you want to have expensive things. Like you, you 
dress for success, essentially yeah. what they say. And so if and if you are not, and so for him, his wife fixing those stockings, that's her recognition that, oh, you're, you're not a success. It's not said, but that's how he would take it. It's like, oh, you don't think I can provide, but no, we don't, we don't do this. I'll buy you new stuff. Then at the end of the movie, then for me, it was like, oh, okay, there's a whole other level here that's going on. So just imagine, because I think the both of those are true. It's not either or, it's it's 100% both. He's got this secret that he's kept, but he's also got the stress of the of the finances and then the this the wife that he loves, I would I would say, that he's betrayed, that he's trying to keep that secret, that the wife now thinks he is incompetent. So it, it makes sense to me that he's maybe maybe not having a mental breakdown. Maybe not that he's losing his mind, but they're definitely which is what happens when he gets to where the this, where he ends up is he's having a mental breakdown. He's having all of these things that are uh, culminating because the sun comes in, which brings it all back together. Yeah. He's able to live with, you know, sort of compartmentalize, but then the sun comes back and then it all comes flooding back, added on to the stress of not being able to work, going into to the boss, the young boss, to ask to get some sort of reprieve. The boss says, no, there is no reprieve. And in fact, you're done. Yeah. All. So it's, I don't think he's, maybe not as he's losing his mind, but he is absolutely having a mental breakdown, which is. Well, he's he certainly stressed. Things are, are bad. As you said that in sales, don't do too much talking. He does way too much talking with his boss and who probably would have kept him on traveling to Boston. But then he talks himself out of a job, essentially. Uh, there's a, a key moment in that scene where we're, where the boss has this, this, this gadget, which is recording his kids, which is like epic brand new technology for, for the time that this is happening. And uh, some people also not, not kind of recognizing how great like it's basically recording right um which we don't think anything of anymore but it is scary to willie to see that so he reacts quite big especially when he accidentally turns turns on the thing and we just hear the guy's son just spouting off the uh, capitals of different states in the u.s and that kind of thing he doesn't understand the world he's in anymore he feels like he's being left behind and he just really doesn't know what to do he thought he was doing all the right things and it turns out he's doing all the wrong things. I'm not sure we can completely trust that what we're seeing is actually happening. I, most of it is in Willie's head. We do have some moments where we, you know, he he's mumbling to himself in the play. Just because it's a play, we do hear him talking. But I think if we were to actually see this, you know, in a realistic play, we would be seeing a guy who would be just going through a series of actions, looking stressed out and or tuned out because he's just in the past thinking about these things but because it's an expressionistic type of play we're hearing these conversations and this internal battle he's having where he's bringing up you know his son from the past he's bringing or sons from the past his neighbor his his uncle over and over again his wife and all of this is just it's all inside his head and but what we're seeing is the expression of that makes it look like he he has uh, for lack of a better term lost it and really what it is is that he's he's just gotten older he should he should be retiring but he just doesn't know what to do and the irony of all this is that his his, his reality is to a point where they're they actually are free and clear they're about to pay off the mortgage and turns out that you know they they make the last payment the time that he dies but i i i think it may be a problem with this particular interpretation that feeds a little bit into and maybe hoffman had the idea too that he was going to play it big and play it crazy he also you know hoffman is a fast talker we see this in some other roles 
levels too, where I think it works quite effectively. Here, I geez, just um, garbling this great text from Arthur Miller, which you know I think is very. Um, uh, it's just a shame. On top of that, all right, I I don't think there's anything overtly wrong with John Malkovich. I'm a defender of John Malkovich. Um, last episode, I reviewed Shadow of the Vampire, and I I like him in most roles. I think he's just miscast here. Biff is supposed to be like this high level popular uh, former football star who's now you know gone through a whole series of things and he's basically a criminal and he's in and out of jail and that's why he can't hold down a job I don't read anything in in Malkovich's like physical appearance vocally body language anything where, which makes him the least bit believable as as Biff I, I don't know how you felt about Mal- Malkovich's performance well so this is so this is very interesting because I thought you and I were going to completely disagree on Wall Street. It turns out we didn't disagree, but apparently we disagree on this salesman. Because <laughs> I really like this, and yeah. uh, and I love. Uh, like I love uh, John Malkovich, and uh, as well as as do you. I mean, I've seen I've seen probably not all of his movies, uh, but a number of them. And so I really. Uh, so you asked me why you don't like it, and I think I know why you don't like it. I think you don't like it because you like the play so much. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you you watch this film and you say to yourself, "Well, that's different than the play." And I like this movie because I never saw the play. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have that baggage coming in. Yeah. I, so I watch it based on on how how this on what the play uh, what this movie um, is aside from uh, whatever it is and so I, I don't have I don't have to worry about having to reconcile what the movie says versus what I've read in the screenplay or what I've seen in the in, in the play itself mm-hmm. because it sounds to me just listening to you because I, I have nothing else to go by because like I said I haven't never read the screenplay I've never seen the play but it sounds to me like the this adaptation is different than what the play is, which happens. And it sounds to me like you don't like that. But I can't can't compare that. All I can do is I can watch it and see what's been presented. And the challenging part that I I saw was they did a good job of aging Dustin Hoffman, but they they did did. a great job of aging John Malkovich. But I really like John Malkovich, so that didn't bother me. And John Malkovich, I thought, did a splendid job of, because you don't understand why he hates his dad so much. Like, I start figuring, what is going on? Like, why is this? But then at the end, it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I get it. Like, why, you know, what's this thing with the mom? And why is he always been like, whoa, like, like, this is like, you're really like, why are you reacting so mad? But then it's like, then you see, because earlier on, it's like, oh, my goodness. Like, he loves his dad. Like, he loves his dad. But then is so then it's like, it's just like, it was like, okay, I get it. This is, yeah. So I, I, I really, I really, so the question I have for you, and this is one thing I didn't understand, or mm-hmm. maybe I did, but I, I my notes I didn't answer my question but why can't Loman Loman return his son's hug and kiss so I think at the end of the movie they make up and uh, the son Malkovich cared whatever his name is comes in he gives his dad a hug and a kiss but Loman doesn't can't return it why because because he he doesn't he he doesn't want I think to he feels that Biff has has given up and and he doesn't want to support that he is staying stubborn on this 
this that you're giving up. You could be working in sporting goods and be the number one salesman. You have this natural gift and you're taking the easy way out. And I am not going to say goodbye to you. I'm not going to hug you. I'm not going to do anything like that because that would be me giving up on you. And that, I think that's, again, that's me. If I'm playing the role, that's the choice I'm making. And that's my my thought pattern there. Again, maybe Hoffman had something else in mind. Um, the one thing I just want to mention is like, actually it is quite a faithful adaptation as far as Arthur Miller's. They had to clean some stuff up for for a TV audience. Um, a little bit of swearing. It's not like a Glengarry Glenn Ross type of swearing, but a couple things in there for that. But other than that, it is pretty faithful to the play. So then I have no reason why you don't like it so much. The interpretation is completely wrong. I mean, so I and I, I hate to, you know, and I'm not sure people will, will take the trouble to go to find some of the stuff, but if you want to see an effective performance of Willie Loman seek out Brian he just recently died Brian Dennehy's they, they did a similar type of thing a Broadway performance a revival several years ago they filmed that and you take a look at that production and that portrayal of Willie Loman and compare it to what Dustin Hoffman's doing and they aren't in the same same league and and Dennehy is absolutely perfect for the role I, I just know of other casts over the years as far as the the Malkovich thing uh, British actor Andrew Garfield which a lot of people will know from Spider-Man and other things he played uh, he he played Biff Loman on Broadway, and I, I just think they're at the time there could have been some other people they could have gone with this is not a knock on Malkovich I I think he is trying his best but I was distracted by John Malkovich in every moment that he was there and then Hoffman would come in and he would be just screaming and shouting his way through the performance and there's you know there's a lot more to Willie Loman than that so uh, I reacted kind of big when you said that Willie Loman's crazy I want to apologize for that because I, I, I think I get why you were thinking that and a lot of people think that and it's because of the choices that Hoffman makes and so I, I'm really putting a lot of this on Dustin Hoffman the other thing I want want to mention is well he should he should know better to me he's you know I, I don't think that's and I've liked him in a lot of other things I'm a fan but not of this often the like the character and the performance of most productions of Death of the Salesman is actually Linda Lohman because that's a separate level of complexity because you're like why is this woman taking this from this man all the time but she defends him and she gets after her boys when they betray him and when they're ashamed of him and when they question what he does and you know it, it takes quite a strong actor to 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 balance that out and for no moment did I actually believe Kate Reed in this production was anything like Linda Lohman she seems just just way it, it looked like a performance to me as opposed to her actually being in the moment I didn't really believe her scenes with her son I didn't I didn't get the like that nurturing you know for lack of a better term stand by your man type of uh, a relationship that that often Linda will have with Willie and trying to sort of calm him down it, it was a performance that was almost forgettable and a little bit lost here which is interesting because it's a great character it's a great opportunity and you're in this pretty high profile production which le leads to a TV movie and I, I thought that's just another problem I had my favorite performance was Charles Durning who only has a few scenes playing Charlie. He understood that character really well. He was the closest to my idea of what Arthur Miller's Death of, Death of a Salesman is actually about. So, and I, I do like that it turns it it has a minor cinematic 
even though you can tell it's all sets and everything, a minor cinematic quality because they got a top-notch cinematographer to shoot this TV movie. So those are the nice things I have to say, but on the whole, it's a giant disappointment for me. I mean, I, I am waiting for this great film of Death of a Salesman, and I have yet to see it. Well, all I'm going to say is that from a sales point of view, which is how I was reviewing it, I, yeah. I, I, like, uh, and not, I, I resonated with the, the, door, the traveling salesman wanting to get off the road wanting to provide for his family it really resonated so i liked it from from that point of view elma gantry is coming elma gantry is an all-american boy he's interested in money sex and religion this uh, this Elmer Gantry and what do you really know about him his background his reputation and what does he want money my job you what Bill. in 1917 mr. Gantry was expelled from a theological seminary in Kansas for seducing a Miss Lula Baines the deacon's daughter in the church where he had that day delivered a Christmas sermon what the hell is the big idea you really think I'd want to sit still for a shakedown? Baby, how could I put this the old batch of game, huh? Who's going to take the word of a five-buck hooker against Elma Gantry? I only wanted to see you for... For what? Well, for... For what? What do you think will get you into God's own glorious heaven? This ace of spades? Your bank book? Or this pledge to be a good Christian? <laughs> I'd like to tear those holy wings off you, make a real woman out of you. I'd show you what heaven's like. No golden stairways or harp music or silvery clouds. Just ecstasy, coming and going. Sin, sin, sin. You're all sinners. You're all doomed to perdition. What is a revival? Is it a church? Is it a religion? Or a... Is it a circus sideshow complete with freaks, magic, and rabble-rousing? By far, the, the 1985 is the next closest, but 25 years before uh, the TV version of Death of a Salesman was 1960's Elmer, Elmer Gantry. It's, uh, it was based on a novel by Sinclair Lewis and uh, adapted for the screen, written and directed by Richard Brooks who uh, has a lot of involvement in film and in theater and has kind of a, an interesting style here and became very successful movie in 1960. It won, uh, it won three Academy Awards. Burt Lancaster, who I, uh, I reviewed his, his last uh, film performance, uh, Field of Dreams, a few episodes ago. And this is the one where he won an Academy Award. Elmer Gantry is a fast-talking uh, traveling salesman who, uh, you know, he frequents uh, a lot of bars and he and he's a womanizer he drinks a lot that kind of thing and then he happens to come across uh, a, a tent revival and he sees a real opportunity and it's mostly to do with kind of the 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 head evangelist who he's is a very attractive woman and he kind of cons his way into this group and he proves to be quite an effective hellfire type of 
preacher. And he also works on trying to make this tent revival bigger and bigger and to go into areas of the United States that they hadn't before. But this leads to uh, various levels of corruption and he has a past. And this is brought out uh, through uh, the fact that, you know, uh, this holier-than-thou man who was wanting to get rid of all of the prostitutes in the city actually used to have a relationship with a prostitute played by Shirley Jones, and the character's name is Lulu Baines. Shirley Jones, I, I don't know if it'd be a surprise necessarily, but she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for this, as well as the adapted screenplay for Richard Brooks won. This was the year Psycho came out. I think a lot of people thought Janet Lee was going to win the Oscar for Psycho. I might have voted for Janet Lee, and it's part of it is because Shirley Jones doesn't have a lot of screen time here, but she's uh, she's quite good. And then Gene Simmons, fairly famous movie star from that time, plays Sister Sharon Falconer, who is very much the true believer. And then not, not a terrible surprise here, but Elmer Gantry ends up in a relationship with Sherry Falconer and they, they get married and everything, uh, even though she doesn't really trust him and really doesn't trust uh, this type of man for a while. So I like this movie quite a bit. I don't think it's perfect by any means. It's a little bit in the middle of with this group of films for me. I think Burt Lancaster, great actor. I'm happy for him that he got an Oscar for this. I think maybe not to the level of Hoffman in Death of a Salesman, but I think he plays it very big. The role asks for that a little bit, but there are other points where I, I feel like he was giving more of a theater performance than a film performance. He, he plays some moments for the rafters, even in scenes where he's not preaching or not playing to a crowd. And so I, I think that you could look at it and say it's a little bit over the top. Maybe that was still kind of in vogue in the style of film film acting in uh, in 1960 but that's a little bit problematic but I am interested in the story and I think there's kind of a there's a lot of really interesting uh, biblical allusions in this story throughout right up and until the end and kind of a little bit of a little bit of a Christ story and resurrection connected to to it in the end and that might be me reading a little bit too much into this so uh, you can correct me if you think I'm completely off base here you you and I we you know we've uh, We've also known each other through church and that kind of thing. You have also been, you're, you're a salesperson, but you've also been been a pastor. So I'm, I'm interested in your take on this movie as far as coming from the sales perspective, but also coming from the religious perspective. So, yeah, because... I- Outside of him being a traveling salesperson, there really is there really isn't much sales in this movie, aside from the scene where he tries to sell some vacuum cleaners. But um, well, he's trying to sell religion. He's trying to sell. Well, and that's the thing, right? So that's what some people will say, uh, and and like the similarities between sales and being a preacher. So he previously Elmer Gantry was a preacher, and then he, through whatever whether it was moral whatever failings or whatever happened, he ended up becoming a traveling salesperson. So he was a a preacher that left in disgrace, became a traveling salesperson, then meets this uh, tent revivalist lady and it gets back to his, back to, I guess, almost sort of his roots. And so I think in a way, for me, there's there's a, a story sort of of, because he, he's, he's a very much, I don't want to say broken, but he's, he's not a, uh, he's obviously a flawed human being because he's an alcoholic, he's a womanizer, but I think the story of, you know this of the Bible is that God doesn't look for perfect people; mm-hmm. He looks for available people. Now, this is mixed in with Elmer Gantry. Is he really serving? Is he looking to serve God, or is he just got ulterior motives? And and so, I mean, that's where the movie.
Jovi, you know, and even is the itinerant revivalist, uh, his love interest. It, is she really, are her motives sincere or is she, mm-hmm. you know, really more into it just to grow the, so that's, that's, I don't, you can play it both ways, but it's interesting to me in terms of, you know, from the, the sales point of view, is the, the great salespeople, I mean, preachers, they're not salespeople because they don't sell, but it's the same skill set because it's communication, right? You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to convey a message. And, you know, whether you're talking to one person or whether you're talking to a, a tent full of people, you have a message. And the, the purpose of sales is to convince somebody of what you're selling. Now, hopefully, and, and this is the challenge with, with uh, preaching, or, or you know with with that message is it's not your message it's really you're talking about what the mess god's message is right what the message of the bible is and depending on who you talk to that message i you know sometimes that message is maybe going to be well received sometimes it's not going to be well received and but that's i guess the real message of the bible isn't to convince isn't to sell something but it's to share love because that's you know paul in in Corinthians talked about you know if you if you um, you know if you don't have love then it doesn't matter you could be you could have all the truth in the world you could have do everything right but if you don't have love then it doesn't matter and I think that's that's the message that and I don't know if that message is portrayed in in this movie per se but I do I do think that that's the the challenge that Elmer Gantry faces is you know he's this larger than life character he's a traveling sales person he's very charismatic he's very outgoing but he was a he's also down on his luck because he wasn't mm-hmm. selling it he's a hobo essentially yeah. and so he's got this opportunity and i think ultimately he probably is somewhat of a man of faith and that's kind of his struggle i don't know that we see it necessarily as much as maybe what you know maybe what is there but i think ultimately he is a man of faith and he's how do you you know reconcile those those two worlds and i mean that's what i like about it is he's a complex character in this this regard before we get into some religious stuff and then uh, you can tell me if i'm reading too much into this piece or or not i, I want to get your take on whether you think he's a good salesman because you did mention he's charismatic the very first scene of the film it's christmas eve he's in a bar and and somebody comes in trying to collect some money for charity and nobody's listening and then he gets up he gives a speech and he's able to collect a whole bunch of money and 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 send uh, this person off with with money for whatever whatever it was there and so it showed his skills of being able to convince people to do these things when they don't want to right uh, but then he's going around and he's selling these really bad vacuum cleaners and he has a scene where with one store owner said well I bought all of these from you and none of them work and so. I mean, I just can't afford to do that anymore. Would you say that for the sales part, is he a good salesman or is he a bad salesman? Well, he stole 13 of those, the, the vacuum cleaners right off the hop. It's not his fault that they don't work. He didn't make them. <laughs> so, so we could say he's a good salesman then. Yeah, they work. Yeah, yeah. probably put in a, re, you know, a replacement order. So <laughs> they just didn't work, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Like he's, he has been able to make sales. He sees this other opportunity now. <laughs> This movie takes place uh, like it was filmed in the '60s, but the it but takes it's place the, in like the '30s. Right? Yeah, it's the '30s, yeah, yeah. Which, which is a big piece in there. The Great Depression. 
the tent revivals were taking place and that's when the you know the great depression was and and all that sort of stuff so being a, a a salesperson in the 30s that's that's a tough gig i i would say, I would say he's he's absolutely you know in terms of his ability uh, he's i would say he's uh, he's got the skills but it, it, you know in a depression ever no, nobody's buying another nobody has any money so it doesn't really matter how good you are if you're the people you're selling to don't have money they're not going to buy anything anyway um or at least it's gonna be a whole lot more difficult but he's yeah no he's yeah but going along with this this uh this revival this tent revival saves him in many ways like not not just religiously and you you know that's one of the things we're left with is like how authentic he was and wisely they don't try to answer that here's where i'm reading reading some stuff in here and then here's where i'm I'm thinking that there's a little bit of a criticism of religion connected to the piece here i kind of see him as being he was saul and then he becomes paul and very much sister sharon is a christ figure and it's then left up to elmer gantry to again tell the story of christ much like paul after his conversion he you know somebody who used to attack and kill christians then is responsible for basically, you know, the New Testament. I see that kind of playing out. And I, I do think that there's some things in there which very much calls to the idea of, of the crucifixion. And they're, they're burning down the tent after they see that, okay, that um, Elmer and, and and Sharon are human beings. And there's a little bit, I think, of when, when they find out that they aren't holier than thou, that the people turn on them in such a dramatic way, much like what what happens to Christ, and the people turn on Christ and 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 he gets crucified, but he gets crucified for for a purpose, so that they you know can 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 save them in the end. And I think that that kind of a thing is playing out here. But I think what again I'm I'm speculating what Richard Brooks I think was interested in this piece is the hypocrisy, you know, the backroom deals uh, to bring the tent revival in with these various members of the religious community that are interested in the money because they're struggling to keep their churches together and 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 the people who will claim all this loyalty to the tent revival then they hear oh so and so was actually had a past life or there was sin as kind of laid out here from news stories connected to the Lulu Baines character who I think that's that's the criticism that he's trying to make and I think it's quite complex am I giving this movie too much credit or is it just about a salesman who who's a con man who gets involved with the uh, tent revival and tragedy happens and then he walks away from it well the opening scene or the opening credits i don't know what you call it but they say i mean it's definitely a movie about uh because it says we value our religious freedoms this is a movie for the faint of hearts but you shouldn't lie essentially and i think that's what this movie is about because in the 30s there was a lot of the revival movement was huge and there was a lot of well that's where the church that you and i met that's it started as tent meetings in new york city and it was people from all different sorts of churches and that was a big challenge that they had when they grew 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 is well what happens now because you got all these people that have never been to church before and, and at that in the 30s church was a big deal because that's where you got married that's where you got baptized that's where you got you did all of that sort of stuff through the church but if you're in a 
tent and you don't have a church, well then what? Because the tent revivals at that point, they weren't they weren't trying to, you know, start a church. They were just trying to, I guess, have a deeper, more meaningful spiritual experience. And uh, ultimately... Save, save people to go to the next town and save more people and... Well, some did that. There was some that they were itinerant tent, tent meetings, but then there was others where it was, there was just like in New York City, you didn't have to go to the next town because there's millions and millions yeah. of people. But yeah, so if you're in a smaller town, then it's a, then it's a different different ball of wax. They have a different. There would be a different mission, if you will, right? And so, in some cases, maybe there would maybe the mission is you know like uh, uh, missional, and uh, and if if that's legitimate, defined legitimate in terms of I would say not self serving because uh, sharing the good news of the gospel shouldn't ever be self serving. And so, if your purpose is purely missional to share the good news, well, I would say that's legitimate. But if your purpose is to make money and making money in and of itself isn't bad, but if that's the purpose and and all you want to do is make more money, then then I would say your mission isn't missional. And then I would say mm-hmm. that, that goes against the the tenets of the gospel. And that I would say that's an illegitimate purpose. So those are all my definitions. Feel free to disagree if you want. But uh, so in, in that regard, I would say that's what this movie is saying. Is it saying we're not, we're not discounting you know revivalists? We're not discounting the revival you know movement, but we are discounting hucksters. Mm-hmm. And I would say that in that regard, that's where it becomes challenging. And they just maybe they don't develop it as much. But both the characters, I think, and especially Elmer Gantry, I think he has a background and he knows he talks. He he can definitely talk the talk, but I don't think mm-hmm. he necessarily walks the walk. I don't think he's ever been challenged to walk the walk. And uh, and he likes the likes the lady, and so he uses the skills that he has as an orator and a salesperson and helps her grow her mission. But he's not really interested in the mission. That's got no impact on why he's doing what he's doing. He, he just, the entire thing is to get to marry Sister Sharon Falconer, and that's, that's pretty much all there is to him. Yep. You think, yeah. Yeah, okay, so... Yeah, and and so I I think we take this as quite a for the time quite a dark film and quite a there's a reason that they have a warning at the beginning because of the censors of that particular time I, which I don't think would would happen now and I, it distracts me a little bit when I see that in the movie sometimes but then I have to recognize it's 1960s here yes. so you know this would have been a very very touchy issue and he had to sort of be careful how how they portrayed it but yeah but I I think it again just getting back to like the film itself I think the acting on the whole is pretty good i like jim gene simmons quite a bit in uh in, the, in this performance shirley jones won, won the oscar for supporting actress as i said she does a good job but I, I think it's a flashy character now you'd be like oh my gosh okay so she played a hooker and she wins an academy award i mean that's that's kind of uh that's kind of you know that, that that used to be the way is just like okay uh, you know a, a good looking movie star who plays a hooker plays uh whatever is going you're, you're going to win an Academy Award, but I, I think there's there's some really um, interesting notes, particularly the sequence where she cons Elmer Gantry and gets back at him for what he's been doing, and by planting the uh, uh, the reporter there to take a picture of them together to try to uh, uh, basically ruin this uh, this revival and and kind of the the dynamics between Simmons and and Jones in the in their one scene together is quite good. So it, I'm not sure how many modern audiences are going to go for this. It it is 
is a longer film, relatively speaking, so that might be a little bit tough for, for attention spans. But I like it. I'm, I'm not sure it's my favorite from uh, this list of five, but I think there's more to like than not like. Let me have your attention for a moment. Because you're talking about what? You're talking about... Bitching about that sale you shot. Some son of a bitch don't want to buy land. Somebody don't want what you're selling. Some broad you're trying to screw, so forth. Let's talk about something important. Are they all here? All but one. Well, I'm going anyway. Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. <laughs> you think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. I'm here from downtown. I'm here from Mitch and Murray. And I'm here on a mission of mercy. Your name's Levine. Yeah. You call yourself a salesman, you son of a bitch? I don't gotta listen to this shit. You certainly don't, pal. Because the good news is you're fired. The bad news is you've got all you've got just one week to regain your job, starting with tonight. Starting with tonight's sit. Oh, have I got your attention now? Good. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize, a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. The leads are weak. The leads are weak. The fucking leads are weak. You're weak. I've been in this business 15 years. What's your name? Fuck you. That's my name. <laughs> you know why, mister? Because you drove a Hyundai to get here tonight. I drove an $80,000 BMW. That's my name. And your name is your wanting. And you can't play in the man's game. You can't close them. Then go home and tell your wife your troubles. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. Okay, Brandon, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking this time to, to be on the show. I'm hoping that you would be willing to come back again and hopefully we can find another area where you have expertise in or maybe just even something that, you know, you just movies that you find entertaining and fun to watch and we could just talk about those as well too. So yeah, just, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope this has, a, has been a good experience. For you, so so this is the part where we get points, and I'm going to start off with the first movie we talked about, Jerry Maguire. So, how many points would you award Jerry Maguire? Okay, well, so I've got 50 total points. So, and Jerry Maguire, I, I, I'm in agreement with you that it's kind of a middle of the road movie for me. So, I'm going to give it 10. Nice and even there. Like, I mean, you, technically, you could give 10 to each of them and call it all a tie. No, I won't um, do that, though. 
I'm not doing no, that. No, no, I, I haven't had anybody do that uh, to this point. We're now on to Glengarry Glen Ross. How many points would you give Glengarry Glen Ross? Okay, so I liked uh, from uh, I, I liked that movie. It's one of my uh, more favorites, so I'm going to give that one 15. Then Wall Street. Given Wall Street, five. Death of a Salesman. Like this is where you and I are going to be wildly different. I'm going to give... Death of a Salesman, 18. And finally, Elmer Gantry. Well, I've got two points left, so I, I, I might be being a little bit harsh for Elmer, but I'm going to give him both of those. Both the two points together. Yeah. Okay. okay. Right. All right. Yeah, our, our, our point totals are in different places here, so this is going to be interesting to see. <laughs> how this goes and there'll be a few places where we agree but it, where we disagree it's going to be very different, so. different. Which, which which i love i absolutely love and that's why i explained to one guest why i do it this way because i you know part of my nature is i'm partially a control freak and so by doing this i i make sure that you know the show is not completely in my control and what happens isn't completely in my, my control so all right with jerry mcguire we we were we were very very close uh, I think I was pretty hard on it in the review. It is an entertaining movie. I think of this list, it's probably the easiest sell for the broadest number of people. I could sell people on seeing this movie maybe easier than the the other four that we talked about here. I gave it 11 points. With Glenn, Glengarry Glenn Ross, I'm in total agreement with you. To me, that this was the movie of the pack in many ways. And, and you know, I, I, I do in my way like almost all of these, but we were exactly the same, 15 points. So it did very well there. Wall Street, uh, we are in a different place there. I I quite like Wall Street. I like Oliver Stone. I Again, I don't know if that's clouding my judgment. I, I, I like the message throughout. I think it's one of Charlie Sheen's best performances. Uh, I gave it 11 points. Okay. Uh, yeah, as, as you predicted, Death of a Salesman, we are in very different places. You gave it uh, You gave it more points than Glengarry Glen Ross, actually. I, uh, I really, of the movies, it's the only one that my thumb would firmly be down for. I, I gave it three points only. Yeah, I think it's in, I think there's going to be, there, someday will be a film version of this which I think would satisfy what you like about the story and what I love about the story but did not see happen here this particular version was not it Elmer Gantry I gave 10 points to I I don't think we're we're too different in our review of it but I think when you're looking at it through the sales point of view maybe there wasn't enough stuff other than some early scenes there for that but judging it as a film i think it's one that people could check out and it's uh it's a very thought-provoking movie for me and you know it's i, I think it still has some themes that we could explore in uh 60 years later so where does that leave everything here all right so in total the big winner uh the big winner is Glengarry Glen Ross, which earned 30 points. No surprise there. Yeah, it uh, it did well. And then there's a, a tie for second with Jerry Maguire and Death of a Salesman. 16 points goes to Wall Street, and Elmer Gantry gets 12 points. It is the lowest total. It is the movie that I have to remove from my movie shelf. So, Brandon Snowsell, what is... What am I to do with Elmer Gantry? You have to, so you have to remove it? Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. So yeah. you de you decide what I do with it. Give it to the library. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you're the second person to, to, to mention that idea. And I think it's a great, uh, a great thing to do. I did, have the libraries opened up yet? I'm not sure if they've opened up. No, them. I don't think they have yet. Yeah. When they open up and I'll take a picture of it and, uh, and let they you know when website. I still have your copy. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to get it back from you. <laughs> 
first as well as well as the other movies there so uh yeah but again thank you for this and i it was really exciting actually in some ways to be in different places with some of these movies and to have the points totals be a little bit more chaotic this one i wasn't quite sure where you were gonna land on some of these i i i kind of thought you would like glengarry glenn ross beyond that i wasn't completely sure so i, I really really enjoyed this and uh thanks again for doing this yeah, is there anything cool. anything you, is there anything you'd like to to promote before i do my close out here well the uh no i think that uh actually thanks for that opportunity but no you know what just watch or i guess listen to the podcast watch the movies there's lots of good stuff out there and uh thanks for tuning in and if you if you're needing a vehicle see brandon Snowcell. Uh, just before we go, as always, I, I want to uh, promote my friend Larry Parsons' uh, movie show, Rank and Review. Just the day we're filming this, but this uh, it'll be a few weeks before we get this out. A new episode that I'm in, uh, which is a Stephen King episode, has been released there. And every two weeks, he has, uh, has a show out, a horror um, podcast, uh, and I, I'd like people to, to check that out. Please start to send me some feedback. Uh, there's more ways now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show to uh get the shelf shutting movie show be help help you can help me by uh going on to itunes now and uh if you like what you hear give it a four or five star review and uh please uh send me feedback on any of the shows you can email me at shelf shutting movie show at gmail.com you can leave a comment or a message under the show on on facebook or uh any of the various services Spotify, Google Play, uh, Stitcher. Keep going to the movies.